All right, welcome to uh, the PhD podcast, episode seventeen. Uh, Jason and I are excited to to have our actually our second Australian student uh, on the podcast today, uh, Robert Mason from uh, who's a recent graduate actually from the University of Melbourne. Um, Rob, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Yeah, Rob, thanks for being on with us today. We appreciate it. So, Rob. Uh, just to begin, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and your journey in terms of, you know, your educational background and what led you to do the research you're doing? Yeah, for sure. I, I guess to add to what you mentioned as well, I'm still technically a student. My, uh, my degree is still in the post at the moment, so it's not quite on the wall yet. Um, but yeah, exciting time to be, uh, to, to be graduating. So um, yeah, I had a, a pretty unorthodox start to my academic career. So I started in a combined degree doing um, just a general Bachelor of Arts combined with a Bachelor of Music. So um, I actually played the saxophone for a number of years. Um, and so some of my kind of early um, interest in motor control, motor learning was around how to learn an instrument better, which is kind of... Um, probably a topic for another day, but uh, that was kind of my, my first degree at uni. Um, I went on, did an honours degree in psychology um, with Professor Jeff Summers, um, Dr. Mark Hinder down at University of Tasmania. So that was very like motor control-y, uh, some bimanual coordination stuff and um, super interesting. Um, went on and did a couple of years of just research assistant stuff. Um, as part of that journey, I got to collect some data in some high schools at that point, I thought, why not? I might go and be a teacher. This looks like a heap of fun, like, you know, being in front of kids all day. Uh, went and did a master's of teaching. Um, but then the sports stuff kind of came out when I was coaching basketball at the same time as learning about how people learn and how to give better feedback and, and some of these kind of um, evidence-based practices in teaching and thinking, well, could we apply this to, you know, the basketball court or um, my dad was a sprint coach. So, you know, could we maybe teach our sprinters better with the type of feedback or the cues that we give? Um, so I hung around after my master's of teaching and, and decided to pursue that interest a little bit further and, and started a PhD. So a bit of a winding journey to, uh, to get to PhD land, but you know, we got there in the end. Um, and yeah, submitted that in June last year and, and passed the exam by probably November. So yeah, that's me. Nice, thanks for sharing that with us, Rob, appreciate it. Yeah, it's interesting though, when we ask that question to people, how the different backgrounds and everything like that, yours is pretty unique from everybody else's. I think from the students that we've had, uh, it's been pretty linear in terms of like, staying in like exercise or activity and continuing on, but you coming from a music background is, is interesting. And does it, I guess a question for you, kind of a little off topic, but do you reflect back now on like when you were initially learning instruments and seeing how you apply feedback or received feedback in learning instruments? Yeah, absolutely. I think practice design is a big one as well. So like, you know, random blocked practice, like I'd kind of do an hour of practice before I had my lesson with my tutor because I was like, I haven't done enough practice this week. I need to cram it in. And then, you know, seeing the benefits of doing smaller amounts through the week and, and kind of mixing that up. So it's not just, you know, I practice scales one day and then I go and practice uh, arpeggios the next day. So some of those kind of practice design principles reflecting back would have been super useful to know earlier, but also I had some really great music tutors who kind of got that stuff and encouraged that um, and were able to give me some really good feedback on, on how to get better on the saxophone, which 
reflection is, you know, not that different from how you would teach someone to kick a football. Huh, that's super interesting. Yeah. So one of the things that we have each of our students do uh, as guests of the, the podcast is share some uh, research articles that were influential to what they're currently working on. And Rob shared two with us. Uh, one was uh, coaching cues and amateur boxing and analysis of ringside feedback provided between rounds of competition. And then the second article that Rob shared with us was a review of the use of systematic observation method in coaching research between 1997 and 2016. Rob, if you wouldn't mind sharing just a little bit uh, more detail about those articles and why they were specifically influential to the work that you're currently doing. Yeah, absolutely. So these two papers were the two that were probably most heavily cited throughout my thesis. Um, the first one, so the, the boxing feedback paper was um, written by primarily some Aussies with also someone from uh, Las Vegas in there uh, who Hajib knows fairly well, I would imagine, and, and you as well, Jason, I'd imagine. So, um, yeah, it, it was a super influential paper for me because um, it was really, um, oh, it, was, it was good to see some Australian researchers. So I guess um, lots of this stuff is coming out of the US and the UK, highly influential you guys over over that side of the world so it was kind of cool for me as a young Australian researcher to have to have that in my own backyard um, but also the design of that paper was just so beautiful and simple like take a couple of variables of interest go and watch some some boxing bouts and and see how coaches give feedback and then how that changes during a winning bout or during a losing bout um, and just looking at some of those variables like uh, autonomy supportive versus controlling feedback and, and how those things change. So um, I modelled one of my papers pretty much from that. Um, it was really, really influential for me. Um, and then the systematic observation paper, um, Cope and Partington and, and Harvey, um, was definitely the most cited. Uh, is a really beautiful overview of the coach observation literature. Um, they pulled together whole heap of studies and, and just really nicely picked some gaps in the field, which um, helped me to, um, to get my head around stuff in the early days of, of doing the literature review for the thesis. Um, and then, you know, there's so many observation instruments, um, a couple of them validated, um, which is really cool from a, um, from a data perspective. Um, but then you read in that paper that not many of the, of the coach observation um, studies using these validated instruments actually use them in their original form. So um, they kind of tweaked it and changed it. And that kind of gave me some reassurance while I was coming up with my own kind of customized coding scheme that, hey, it's actually okay to pick and choose some variables that are of interest to you. Um, the validity, you know, validating an instrument is probably half a PhD in its own right. So that kind of gave me some reassurance, reassurance that, I, uh, that I wasn't cheating the system too much. Rob, just to kind of jump off that point for just a second, what are some of the instruments that are used by researchers in terms of uh, coach observation? They all kind of stemmed out of, well, I guess the first one was um, one that, that was used on John Wooden, so the highly successful mm -hmm. um, basketball coach, UCLA. Um, back in 1976, a couple of classroom researchers went and watched his practice and started looking at things like praises versus skulls, which, you know, kind of positive, negative feedback. Um, and so a number of schemes kind of um, came out of that. So you've got the Arizona State University observation instrument, um, you've got the CAIS as well, which is coming out of the UK, which are um, two of the main ones that kind of get used um, in the main. Uh, yeah, a couple of other ones as well, but 
basically they're all stemming from those. Uh, they, and then I kind of rogue and picked my own. <laughs> are they sort of like classification systems in terms of like discriminating between like positive versus negative, like different types of feedback? Is that kind of how this works? This is just like unfamiliar to me. I was just curious. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So yeah, one of the really common categories is positive versus negative feedback or um, things like encouragers or uh, there's, there's a, a category called a wooden, which was kind of like one of John Wooden's signature things. So, you know, a little bit of hustle and some, some right. reinforcements. And so it's basically just categorizing um, coach verbalizations. Um, normally during training, it, it kind of gets adapted into a, an in-game situation as well. But um, yeah, it's, it just gives you some metrics on what the coach is saying and um, other things like instruction time versus silent time, um, those kind of things. Interesting. So that's super interesting. From, from your own research that you've conducted in, you know, you're an expert in this field and the research that you've come across, um, what have you found when it comes to coaching perception on like the general role of feedback? Like are coaches even necessarily aware of the feedback that they're giving or does it vary from player to player? Like what are your, your thoughts on that? Yeah. I've, I've got a cop-out answer that I give all the time to this, like, you know, just feedback change player to player. So I've got some um, colleagues and, and good mates who are coach developers. So they work with coaches to, um, to work alongside them and, and improve their practice over time. And uh, we were joking the other day about getting uh, T-shirts made up with it depends written across the front you know, for whatever, whenever we're doing one of <laughs> That's them. An answer. That's an answer I think every scientist has ready. <laughs> <laughs> Right, and it's it's simultaneously beautiful and a complete cop out of an answer because uh, it could be an answer for anything. But um, yeah, I, I think horses for courses. Um, feedback depends so much on on the context in which it's given, um, and coaches I think really intuitively know this. Good coaches know that feedback shouldn't be identical in, in different circumstances. So you know it's is a piece of feedback given during a final timeout of a basketball game with three seconds left on the clock? Um, is it given, you know, over a coffee with a player two days after a game? Um, you know, is it being given to like a 12 year old youth soccer player or is it being given to, you know, uh, someone in their mid thirties who's like a, an elite veteran linebacker or something, you know, there's, there's so many different bits and pieces that contribute to, um, to how feedback might be given. Um, so it's, it's definitely an, it depends answer, um, which is, as I mentioned, can be frustrating because working with coaches and they know that you're an expert in feedback, they'll go, Oh, cool. So what should my ratio be of positive <laughs> negative? And the answer is, is never, Oh, the golden rule is it's four to one or, you know, people who, people who advertise these kind of, uh, one size fits all rules, I think, are not quite giving you the full picture. Yeah. Are, are coaches just one one last follow up question on this? Are coaches generally receptive to changing their feedback style or the type of feedback that they give? Or I, I guess that's just a question that just came to my my head, Rob. Like, what are what are coaching practice? Do coaching practices change easily in terms of feedback? That is a great question. It could be a whole podcast on its own, I reckon. So um, I was really fortunate throughout my PhD to work with a pro football team over here, an Australian rules team. Um, so I was actually able to work alongside some coaches and um, try and upskill them with the feedback that they gave during the game or, you know, during training. Um, and it's, I think, like the, the golden ticket there is, is relationships. Like I can't come in as 
some, you know, fresh upstart from a university course being like, oh, look, I learned from this textbook that you should give this <laughs> And so it's all about, you know, building rapport and, and small changes over time. You can't reinvent the wheel in a session. So, I mean, I've been at this football club now for going on five years um, to the point where the coaches kind of trust that I've got some data behind me and, um, you know, I'm, I'm not there just for a, you know, there for a quick buck or there to, you know, build my own profile. I'm actually there with kind of genuine intentions to, to help them improve their practice. And I think that helps so much with, with buy-in in getting coaches to change their behaviour. Absolutely. That's awesome, yeah. Um, on that point, so after reading a couple of the papers that you sent us, um, there obviously seems to be a gap in, in the literature as it pertains to understanding coach feedback and practices versus actual games. Um, why do you think that is and what can coaches do to close that sort of gap? Yeah, yeah, awesome question. And yeah, obviously you've done your reading, done your homework because it's, it's a huge one. Um, so I like to think of it as... So we talk about constraints a lot, right, in, in training design and it's kind of uh, not a buzzword because it's it's legit. Yeah. Um, so we talk about constraints acting on our athletes and how to manipulate those to get a desired outcome. And I like to think of coaches as having constraints operating on them as well. So as I mentioned before, you know, pressure might be one of those. So are you in the last three seconds of a championship game or, um, you know, there's so many pra- uh, differences between coaching in a practice, coaching in a game, um, scoreboard pressure, time pressure, you know, are you scrimmaging against your own players or are you scrimmaging against an opposition where there's maybe some rivalry or a little bit of extra heat in there? Um, have you got TV cameras? Have you got a crowd? Like all of these things are feeding into um, a coach's behaviour and, and operating on, on that coach. Um, and that, I think, comes out in the feedback that they give. Um, so from some of the data that I collected, um, we found that coaches were more positive and promoted more athlete autonomy um, in scenarios with less pressure. So if you're in like a video feedback, like review type scenario, feedback generally goes that way. And then you swing towards a game scenario with a little bit more pressure and, and those kind of constraints operating on the coach and you've got more negative feedback. Um, the feedback becomes more controlling, so kind of telling the athletes what to do um, and prescriptive as well. Um, so I, I think we can definitely close the gap a little between practice and, and competition. Um, and part of that answer might be helping coaches to reflect back on their, on their feedback and, hey, here's actually how you sound when, you're, when your jugular is popping out and, you know, you see coaches pacing up and down the sidelines sometimes. Um, yeah. Yeah, I like, yeah. How you, I like how you brought up the constraints approach. Because like you, you can also talk about this in terms of practice design, right? Like even in practice – I can create situations that are similar to what people are doing in games and, you know, yeah, work with the feedback that way. It's, it's really, it, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's a lot of work to do for us. So it's good. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. More questions than answers as always. <laughs> yeah. So you, you just hit on it a little bit, but um, in, in the Halpern paper that you sent, um, coaches provided more internal focus instructions in the losing compared to the winning bouts um, and that in losing bouts, there was more controlling feedback than in winning bouts. Now, this was also an individual sport. Um, it, was, it was boxing, so it was very individual. Uh, would you uh, would this be also similar if you were to look at it in a team setting? Yeah, I think 
um, yeah, you're right. Like the Halperin study was in boxing, individual sport. Yeah. Uh, and there was actually another paper referred to in the boxing study from track and field. So they found similar in, yeah. in that report was the kind of more internal focus feedback. Um, team sport is an interesting one. I don't know too much evidence um, in that kind of environment, but I'd have a hunch that there'd be more internal focus feedback during training um, where there might be more focus on uh, individual technique or, um, you know, whether it's goal kicking practice or, or things where there's probably more scope where coaches are breaking down um, skills or, or technique. Whereas game day, my feeling is there'd be a lot more external because the coaches are focusing on coordination between teammates. It's more strategic or um, more kind of scenario tactical yeah. stuff. So it's kind of my hunch, um, but yeah, as we just said, more questions than answers, right? Like it's it's another paper yeah. to be written. So if you're out there listening and need a uh, need a project for your PhD, please <laughs> consider. Yeah, um, th- it was it was interesting that that paper found um, that there was uh, more controlling um, sort of feedback than there was, um, I guess, more positive or, or autonomy supportive feedback. Um, I think it was in the uh, losing bounce, so that was that was that was interesting. I, I think it makes sense in a, in a way, but it also uh, again allows us to think about why that's happening. And I think that can also shape how we practice and whatnot. So it's pretty cool. Um, yeah, so Rob, Rob, the next question that I, that I was thinking about was younger coaches. Uh, you know, it's uh, younger coaches or <clears throat> coaches at different levels usually compare themselves. Um, to these elite level coaches um, and they're what their approaches are right so we try to like take what they do and then implement it in like seven to 12 years old or whatever it is you know Um, is that beneficial or detrimental when it comes to providing feedback yeah another ripper question I love that and it's a pretty natural thing to do right like back to being a kid and like watching athletes you know I had a poster of you know some some cricket players, it might have been Matthew Hayden or someone on my wall at home because I, you know, used to idolise, you know, cricketers or footballers and, and coaches kind of do the same when they're starting out. They go, ah, oh, you know, John Wooden won all those titles. Like maybe I could, you know, emulate what he's done. Um, yeah, I, it's an interesting one because I think there's this underlying assumption that if you're coaching junior athletes, then everyone's a novice in there. And if you're coaching elite athletes, then everyone's an expert. But I'm, I'm kind of wrestling with this notion at the moment, and I'd love to get your thoughts as well on, on the idea that actually there are some expert performers in that group of kids. There are some kids yeah. who are you know, 11 or 12 years old and are complete masters of their craft. I agree. Likewise, yeah. You've got elite performers who might be complete novices at a certain skill. Like if, if you've had to go from playing striker and suddenly you play at fullback or you know, heaven forbid you end up in the, in goals because you get some injuries to your goalkeeper, then then you're a novice again. So um, it, there are kind of mini scenarios within each of those groups where, you know, it, there are some similarities between what the pros are doing and what the, the amateurs are doing. Um, yeah, I think coaches can always learn stuff from each other and, and pick up some practices from each other, no matter the, the scenario. But also 
take it with a grain of salt. You know, what worked for John Wooden in the mid-70s doesn't necessarily work for you in 2021 with your under-11s. Yeah. It's like it's like the concept of, like, in practice, if we're coaching, like, 12-year-olds, you know, we'd show them video of, like, professional athletes, right? Is that really, you know, similar in nature in terms of is that going to help them or not? It kind of, like, keeps me thinking about the gamut of, like, there's a continuum of expertise level and how that affects not only coaching uh, in terms of us as coaches providing feedback, but how the athletes are actually, you know, comprehending that, that same feedback. It's really, it's important. I think, uh, again, more questions, but it's, uh, it's, think, it's super cool. I think something else to consider too, potentially in this role, of, uh, like idolizing like feedback styles of just coaches in general is the, the cultural aspects now of, younger or just elite level athletes too i mean it's a like from when john Wooden was coaching in the 70s it's a lot different day and age now yeah. in 2021 with like how athletes grow up how they develop in a, like an aau amateur culture there's just different expectations i think like i mean good examples like at least in in the united states like really high level amateur athletes in like football and basketball they're being told almost every single day that they are the greatest athlete in the world and so how they receive feedback i think is going to be a lot different than how an athlete who was in the 70s and 80s received feedback you know what does that make does that make sense oh absolutely and that's I, something I, I, that, and, um so i did like an interview study that sits at the front of my thesis where i, I sat down with eight elite coaches and said you know what some of the barriers to giving feedback and some of the coaches said we've got to undo the work that lots of junior coaches did in pumping up those junior athletes and saying you're going to be the best thing ever you know we're all in your corner you're going to be number one and then suddenly they get to the pro level and they're a small fish in a much bigger pond and Mm -hmm. and there's some work to do there to manage expectations around hey sometimes the feedback that you get isn't going to be positive and that's got to be okay which is well they've never yeah they've never been through like adversity before or they've never just like they've never just had like a tough coach on them before who were like like mistakes happen yeah the other coach would just let it kind of slide or whatever but now they have a coach who's you know a little more critical and i i think some athletes don't handle that well at least nowadays they just they don't necessarily so absolutely yeah 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 that's that's super interesting and it kind of uh goes to the next question that we had was you know sometimes we get feedback and it's coaches get feedback and it's not really received um and quote unquote and and this we got from your blog so uh we'll we'll post that we'll post that in there as well but um yeah so sometimes it's not received or remembered by the athlete so what can coaches do to make feedback more readily received um and i know you talked a little about self-regulation so where does self-regulation fit in all this yeah yeah i've got to uh give a shout out to my one of my phd supervisors professor john hattie who kind of one of his big catch cries is uh, feedback given isn't feedback received. Um, That's awesome. You know, spent years and years, decades, I shouldn't shortchange him, decades, uh, in in classroom research and finding that with teachers and students. And I don't think uh, it's any different for coaches and athletes. So um, in getting around this idea that not all of the feedback that you give will be received, I guess the best bit of advice I would have is is to go with less is more until you have some evidence that your athletes are actually, you know, engaging with that feedback, don't give them more than you know they can receive. Um, It also comes back to this idea of a constraint, right? An informational constraint might be giving them a whole heap more stuff than they need and end up 
to use the colloquial, cramping their style or, or preventing that, that flow that they might need where they're just kind of interacting with their environment. So instead of giving them five different bits and pieces during a timeout or, you know, during a break in training, just, I mean, it, it takes more work as a coach, but pick the one thing that you think is going to make a real difference and get them to focus on that. Because um, I think that, you know, the alternative is you give them the five and they change none of them and then not a really great outcome for anyone involved. Yeah. Um, and, and related to that second part of your question about self-regulating, you know, where, and again, it, this is what, where my work ties in so well with um, skill acquisition field and fortunate enough to work with um, Carl Woods at Port Adelaide, who's yeah. um, really pushing the envelope in this space. Yeah. You know, one of his big things is pushing the athletes to come up with their own solutions. So you create the problems for them and, um, they explore the environment and, and solve problems themselves. So if you're able to create that capacity in your athletes to do that without relying on yourself as a coach, then you're able to give less feedback and, and you don't have to figure out which five bits you're going to give them because yeah. they've got those abilities themselves. So I think that's almost like the, the special source, if you like, in terms of, of coaching and, and getting them to that next level is, is having the um the strength in your own abilities as a coach to realize that you're not always what your athlete needs right i think uh that was me that, uh, knew yeah. different. sorry about that um rob before i let you go I just have a couple uh final questions for you we know you've uh touched on some of the work that you've uh been doing in the past and some of the work you're doing with uh some of the clubs in Australia, but could you go into a little bit more on some of the current research you're doing or some future uh, projects that you'd like to explore? And uh, if you just provide a little bit more on that for us, that'd be great. Yeah, for sure. So I think first and foremost, what I want to do now that the PhD is kind of sitting on the bookshelf and uh, gathering dust, uh, I want to actually make sure that stuff gets used. So that's yeah. why I started um, the blog that you mentioned earlier, Hajif. So it's, it's around making sure that all that kind of blood, sweat and tears that I put into the last three, three and a half years is actually going to see the light of day and, and be read by more people than, you know, mum, dad, my supervisors and my <laughs> exam, um, which is a, bit of a, a grim thought. Um, so, yeah, I started a little blog series, trying to keep them around 500 words, um, plain language, no jargon, end with some reflective questions for coaches so that, um, so that it's digestible. And, and that's, it's not a matter of, dumbing it down because I think it takes it takes so much effort to say something simply and I think sometimes we can hide our research in jargon or in um in very long ways of saying stuff when it could be a simple sentence and that's a really humbling exercise to kind of go through that um my other project at the moment is actually getting back into coaching so I've just started helping out with the under 18 girls at the uh the mighty north Adelaide Rockets so that's been a really cool um process to to go back to I guess our version of the cold face, if you like, yeah. and, and actually start putting some of this stuff back into practice. Um, yeah, there's the stuff with uh, the football club still on the go, so I'll be helping the coaches out there. And, yeah, just a couple of review papers um, that have stemmed from the PhD where I kind of thought, hey, there's a, there's a big old gap here. Um, so, yeah, yeah, nice to have a little break from thinking about papers for a couple of months, but now the uh, 
you know, you have these conversations with like-minded people like yourselves and, and the fire starts burning again and you go, oh, yeah. oh, this really needs to come out. So we've come up with five questions in the last half hour about new stuff that needs to be answered. So, yeah, an academic's work is never done, is it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, it's great having discussions like this too. I mean, I, I mean, I learned a lot from this. Again, this isn't, you know, this isn't my background at all. I come from a biomechanics background, so the coaching – cues, feedback. I've learned a lot from Harjeev in the couple of years that we lived together, but just having conversations like this always make me think more about my time when I was, you know, coaching athletes and how my practices were and ways that I can improve it going forward. So it's, it's great information that you've shared with us, Rob. We really do appreciate it. And then just one final parting question for you. You've talked a lot, you've given a lot of great information in this podcast, but if you could have, uh, in essence, one takeaway that a coach can get from from your expertise and your research what would what would that be i think the biggest bang for buck thing that a coach who is listening to this podcast could do is get a gopro and chuck it on your chest at training or in a game or you know at least get you know a phone with a voice record or something like that Um, if you put the mirror on yourself you're going to know what you say how you say it um you know at most levels, we make our athletes watch vision of their performance, but coaches are performance too. So I think we could hold ourselves to that same standard um, and you just get so much information out of it. Don't feel like you have to do it alone. Don't just sit there and reflect because you'll cringe at the sound of your own voice and you'll go through all the stages of you know anger, denial, guilt, all those things because it's a really, it can be a horrible confronting process, but I promise you'll come out the other side with a whole heap of gold that will help you improve as a coach. So um, yeah, sit down with a coaching colleague or a mentor and go through it together. Don't put yourself through that torture alone, but yeah, I think it's, it's a really great way of becoming a reflective coach. That's great advice. That's awesome. That's very good advice. Rob, uh, for people who want to reach out to you, what are some uh, good ways to get a hold of you? Social media, other we mentioned the blog a few times, which we'll link in the in the uh, show notes. But any other any other mediums people can use to reach out? Yeah, for sure. So uh, I've got a Twitter that I'm trying to keep active on. So that's at Rob underscore Mason twelve. Um, there's the blog as well, which you guys have brilliantly, shamelessly plugged, uh, which is much appreciated. So yeah, there's only kind of three or four posts on there at the moment, but that's growing every month. So that's masonlearning.com. Um, and yeah, if you, uh, if you shoot me a message on Twitter, I'd love to kind of chat to anyone who's, uh, who's been listening along and, and has some interest in this area or just generally wants to chat about coaching because, I'm sure, yeah, similar to you guys, I can, I can get going on this all day and, uh-huh. you know, find your passion and it's very hard to shut up about it. <laughs> Love it, man. Love it. Love it, man. It's awesome. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for spending some time with us. I know it's early morning over there. So, Yeah, Rob, appreciate it. Appreciate your time. Appreciate your thoughts. I learned a lot from this and sure our listeners will as well. And uh, take care and uh, stay safe, Rob. Hey, thanks so much, Jason. Hi, It's been a pleasure. Thanks yeah. for having me on. Thanks, thanks for coming on, man. Take care.